Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Morning, Chris. Oh, hi, Laura. How are you doing? I'm excellent. I'm excited to be chatting to you. So oh, I'm well, not half as excited as I am, of course. <laughs> not to be chatting to me, but to be talking to you. <laughs> no, but I'm really excited. Um, so, but I just have a very quick question. I mean, just before we discuss what you want to talk about, um, why the naked scientist? Well, about 15 years ago, because it's our 15th birthday of The Naked Scientist this September, about 15 years ago, uh, I was just getting started making radio programmes while I was also just getting started being a doctor and a scientist because I like doing lots of things at once. And, And I was thinking to myself, how do I make something which is, it says fun, but it says science. So it makes you laugh and then makes you think. And we came up with the name Naked Scientist because A, it was free and no one else had it. And B, it, it did what it said on the tin. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> awesome, Chris. And so today we're discussing universal cancer vaccine. That sounds exciting. I know, I know yeah, well, a lot of... Cancer affects one person in every three. It's an extremely common condition. And at the moment, there's limited amounts of things that we can do once a person has a diagnosis of cancer for people who are not in the know cancer is a genetic disease it's where cells get damaged to their dna and this damage to the dna in cells causes the cells to disobey the usual controls that govern where cells go in the body how they grow and how long they live for cancer cells start growing uncontrollably they invade through other tissues they do damage they secrete chemicals that damage the body and as a result they harm you and they're invariably fatal now what we would like to do is to persuade the immune system to regard cancers as hostile and to attack them but there are very powerful mechanisms at play in the body which prevent your immune system from attacking your tissue because it's regarded as part of yourself Mm. and to stop you having autoimmune diseases where the immune system attacks the tissues there are various factors at play that prevent this but what researchers in germany have done and this is a gentleman called Ugur sahin who is a researcher in germany he's got a paper in nature this week where he and his colleagues have found a way to re-educate and reprogram the immune system so it can attack cancer cells and the way they do this is that they have found ways to find various features or chemical markers which are exclusively present on cancer cells and are absent on healthy tissue they work out what the genetic code is to make those particular markers and they then make a short genetic message which they wrap up in an oily envelope called a lipoplex and this is injected into the bloodstream and it goes around the body to all of the immune educating centers in the body which are lymph nodes your glands also your spleen and your bone marrow it gets taken up by cells that can educate the immune system and turned into the marker on those cells which then reprogram white blood cells immune cells to go and find cells that have that marker on them seek them out and destroy them now they've done tests on mice and it's been extremely promising and now they're doing tests on 
humans, they've got some cases of melanoma, three patients that they're doing a phase one trial on uh, with skin cancer, and one of the people has gone into remission, one of the cases has stable disease, it hasn't progressed, and the other one seems to be responding, the, the tumour that they've been monitoring has, has shrunk. So it does look like this is very promising, and because you can just change the set of markers that you're telling it to go after, it could potentially work for any cancer. Oh, wow, that is actually incredible. The Naked Scientist is here to answer all your science-related questions. Do call us on 012-021-446-0567 or 11 We do have a first caller on the line, and that's Cynthia from Naturina. Cynthia? Um, hi, Lira and um, uh, Professor, Naked Professor. I've got a question about, um, another question, just an observation. It seems like... Most of the preservatives in the foods that we buy in the supermarket are cancer-causing. How can we stop this, or is this true, or is it just um, my imagination? But when I look up some of the chemicals that are in our foods, it seems like they... Oh, damn. Yeah, I think I, think I got the got gist. Just, yes. um, yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is that oxygen, which none of us can live without also causes cancer. So it, it's important to take a measured view of this. Anything is harmful in excess. And mm. things like oxygen can damage your DNA. There are some chemicals which are present in small amounts which are extremely beneficial because they prevent the growth of harmful microorganisms which would make you dead, not just a, a slightly elevated risk of having cancer. So there are lots of things in the environment which we are exposed to all the time that could be regarded as carcinogenic. And also many of these evaluations of the ability of a chemical to cause cancer are done in things like rat studies where they force feed animals huge doses way beyond how a human would, would use the substance, mm -hmm. be exposed to the substance. And also these are rats, not people. So they also are going to have physiological differences. So you have to be really careful how you interpret uh, evidence suggesting that something causes cancer. At the same time, you, you shouldn't just take anything with a, with, you know, swallow, swallow anything. You should take it with a pinch of salt, although salt's mm. bad for you too. Because um, it, it is important to make sure that you remain healthily sceptical about anything that you read in a magazine. Ask to see the evidence, because if something really is known to cause cancer, then there should be a proper clinical trial showing that if you are exposed to a thing and you have more exposure than the next person, your risk of cancer is higher than the next person. Um, these are the criteria for causation. So the, you've got to look up the data. Don't just, don't just read something in a magazine and then think, oh, that must be true then, because it's important to ask hard questions. Right. Well, that's a good one. Um, we've got Zania from Houghton. Morning, Zania. Good morning, Lira. Good morning, Diana Kiplantis. My question is, I'd like to know, when a person want to throw up, what's really happening in the body? What pushes the food up? Oh, hello. What a lovely question over breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> People sort of looking at their coffee now thinking, hmm. Well, the, the fancy word for throwing up is retroperistalsis. Everything is pushed through the tube inside your body. We have a, a tube running from the root end, um, it, well, it starts at the plight end and goes down to the root end, the, your gut tube, and it's covered in muscles. There's a thick layer of muscles which are, some of the muscles are in a circular shape around the tube, others are running along the length of the tube, and by contracting these muscles, you can actually make the tube narrower 
and then you can push from behind to squeeze things along. It's a bit like you squeezing a tube of toothpaste, and that's how food is propelled through the gastrointestinal tract to move it from the polite end to the rude end. Now, when you feel ill or you want to throw up, what has happened is that something, whether it's a chemical or an infection or a chemical made by some kind of infection or some kind of other inflammation or even motion sickness, something is triggering the gut to become inflamed and also to to regard the presence of whatever's in the gut as bad for you and it then initiates a process of retroperistalsis and it puts the process I just described for moving things forward down the intestine into reverse. So you secrete material and water into the inside of the gut, you then clench off the muscles downstream and you have a very powerful contraction of muscles around the stomach you relax your food pipe the esophagus and this pressure from behind then throws everything out very very quickly and the, you can you can expel everything from your stomach right down to the end of your small intestine in this way so it's quite a large amount of material that you can throw up and i learned the other day from a vet that uh, cows are allergic to chemicals in rhododendrons so if you accidentally feed a cow some rhododendron then you get quite a spectacular mess because cows have got literally hundreds of liters of water in them and you, you can make quite a mess of your cow field very quickly if cows eat the wrong thing. Amazing. Folks, the Naked Scientist takes more of your calls after this. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. It's 20 minutes past 10 and the Naked Scientist is still taking your calls on 011-883-0702 as well as on Cape Talk 021-446-0567. On the line we have Trevor. Morning, Trevor. Hello. Hi. You've got a question for the Hello? naked side. Trevor, can you hear us? Yes. Can you hear me? Indeed. Loud and clear. Okay. Chris, I'm wanting to find out. We all know that the tides are caused by, mainly by the moon. Um, why isn't it low tide? When it's high tide at the point closest to the moon, why isn't it low tide on the point on the earth exactly opposite that one instead of high tide there as well? Okay, let's just clarify for everybody because this is a really good question. Why are there two high tides per day? Because the earth sits inside the orbit of the moon and we are told that because the moon exerts a gravitational effect or a pull on the earth, it's pulling the water on the earth's surface into a big heap facing the moon and that's a high tide. So given that the earth rotates exactly once per day and is rotating through that high tide, why should we have more than one high tide a day? Well the answer is if you look on the other side of the earth directly opposite the moon, you also find a high tide there as well. Where's that one come from? Well, here's what's going on. Because the moon pulls on the earth and pulls the water towards it, you do get a heap of water on the side of the earth facing the moon. It draws the water from the sides of the earth where the pull of the moon is less strong, so they're experiencing a low tide at both of those points, so you have two low tides, and on the opposite side of the earth, furthest from the moon, because the earth moves as a unit, because it's a solid object, and the water is pulled towards the moon on that side, the, and the water is less attracted, the earth moves, but the water doesn't, so you get a relative heaping up of water on that side of the earth, because it's being pulled less than the earth is on that side. And therefore you'll have one high tide, which is a bit higher than the other high tide, so the high tide facing the moon is a bit higher 
than the high tide on the opposite side of the Earth, away from the Moon. And that's the reason for the disparity. Interesting one. Um, Swaki from Johannesburg. Hi. Um, I want to find out um, from the naked scientist, what is the correlation between my having my tonsils out and um, my vocal range having to change? So I'm a musician, and after having my tonsils out, I have found out that my voice um, capability and the range and the reach, you know, your high-pitched tones and so forth, I cannot really do that well like before I had my tonsils out. Are you saying you've lost vocal range? Yes, my vocal range has now sort of like limits. You know, I, I cannot reach the, the, the high range that I, I used to before I had my tonsils out. Okay. And was this a direct consequence of having the tonsils out, or did you have your tonsils out when you were 12 and you're now a bit older? No, I actually had them quite late in life. I had them when I was 30 and now I'm 40. Okay, but when did your when did you notice your voice changed a bit? Um, right after you know my um, healing, you know, completely healing, as I started going back to my singing and so forth. Um, and yeah, that's what happened. Um, well, as soon as I started, I got healed properly, and I started singing again. I noticed a huge change. <laughs> Sure. Well, the reason that the voice sounds the way that it does is because your head and neck is a resonator. Your mouth is a cavity, which is a certain shape, and it amplifies certain sounds and certain frequencies better than others. And this is what gives us our unique voice that we each has, because our throat, vocal cords, and the mouth are all differently shaped in each of us because we all look different and we're different on the inside as well. If someone goes in and they change the shape of the back of your throat a bit, they're going to do two things. One, by taking some tissue away, they might subtly change the shape of that resonator. Therefore, some frequencies will amplify better than others, making it easier or less hard, or in some cases harder, to make certain sounds sound loud. Second, there can also be some scarring when you manipulate that tissue at the back of the throat and scoop out the, the tonsillar tissue and the scar tissue is a bit stiffer and the altered stiffness of the tissue means it can make manipulating the shape of the back of the throat slightly harder and this can again affect your ability to form the shapes that give you the sorts of sounds you want to make. Now this is not going to be universal to everybody and the amount of tissue taken away is really rather small because you're just talking about lymphoid tissue, it's immune tissue um, but that could well be what's happened in yourself. There are some other more subtle things that could happen such as damage to nerves and so on but I think you would have noticed if there'd been nerve damage because you would be haunted and uh, you, you certainly don't sound hoarse to me so I suspect it's more to do with the shape of the back of the throat and subtle changes to the stiffness of the tissue which has caused this Amazing, I, I still have mine so when I heard that question I was like well, then I best not remove them <laughs> but good one there um, We've got Gomolo in Midrand Hey, Lira, it's actually Gomolo Gomolo Yes, with the My apologies ah, job, Thank you, thank you very much and you have My a question, question to please? the naked scientist is, is, is cancer predominant in a certain race? I'm, I'm picking up a lot of people around a particular race having cancer that they never use. Is there a fact, scientific fact to back that? I couldn't understand the question. I'm sorry, the audio quality wasn't good enough. Can you tell me what, what the question was, please? My question is, is cancer predominant in, a, in, in certain races than the uh. others? Because I'm picking up a certain, I'm hearing a lot of cases in a certain race 
that never used to have issues with cancer? Is it in predominant in a certain race because of a certain lifestyle? I don't know. Did yep. you get the c- um, okay. uh, yes, I, d- I did. So is cancer more common in certain races than others? And it's certainly right. true that there are certain groups of individuals on Earth who are at higher risk of developing certain kinds of cancers than other groups. And there are various reasons for this. There can be genetic reasons, there are also environmental reasons, and there are behavioural slash cultural reasons for all of these things. So yes, absolutely, cancer can be more common in certain groups. Sometimes it's because of genes they inherit from their parents but more commonly it's because of where they live what they eat and how they behave interesting one uh we've got now cheryl from randberg cheryl can you hear me yes we can now go ahead thank you i'm interested to know how fast electricity travels in water i saw a movie where a man was sitting at the back of a swimming pool approximately six meters long four meters wide Somebody dropped an electrical appliance in at point A. He was sitting at point B. How long does it take for that electricity to travel through to point B to have affected him? Or would he have had enough time to see the danger and gotten out? Um, interesting question. I've never done the experiment on myself, but I'm sure there are people who have. <laughs> the, the bottom line is that electricity travels at nearly the speed of light. Although the electrons in a wire, which are conveying the electrical signal, they're they're drifting along at roughly walking pace. But the way electricity works in a wire is that it's a bit like a Newton's cradle. You've probably seen this device with a series of balls on bits of string and you drop one ball in at one end and it knocks into the ball next to it, knocks into the ball next to it, knocks into the ball next to it and sends the ball at the end of the line pinging off very fast. Well, electricity does a similar sort of thing when it moves through a wire with electrons all buffeting into each other and shunting one in, one out sort of thing. In, in a swimming pool or, or water, when you put a conductor into the water at high potential, so that's like a live wire going in, then the, that, that's, that's putting a push into the charged particles in the water and that they, they want to give that energy away to anything at a lower potential. Now, the obvious place to do that is at the neutral line. So if you've dropped an appliance in that's got a positive and a negative, then the electricity is principally going to want to flow in there because that is at a lower potential. There will, of course, be an area around the live wire of higher potential, and as you get further away, the risk is going to drop away because the electricity, why would the electricity gain any benefit of flowing through you if you're not at a lower potential? Um, So therefore, if you are far enough away, you're not at any risk whatsoever. If you're very close to the source of the electricity, then it will see you, and your body is a big bag of salt and is a very good conductor of electricity, much better than the fresh water of a swimming pool, so you will take part in the circuit to an extent. So the closer you are, the higher your risk. But the the effect is going to be near instantaneous. You're not going to have time to see the toaster or the electrical device or the hairdryer drop into the shower or the bath or whatever and then think, oh, I'll run away now because the electricity will have got to you if it's going to before you've even had time to register that you've seen the thing drop into the water because your brain is operating maybe half a second behind what's really happening to you. And so you, you wouldn't really have time to make a decision about what to do about it. If it was going to get you, it would get you. We've got uh, now George from Carltonville. Morning, George. Good morning. Doc, uh, just a question off the wall uh, regarding cancer. Is it possible that cancer 
is a sort of catalyst for evolution because uh, the fact that it changes cells. I'll listen on the radio. Hi, George. So is cancer a catalyst for the evolutionary process? Well, in some respects it is, but not for, I think, the reason you're thinking. I started this piece by saying cancer is a genetic disease and it's an acquired disease. You, you have damage to your DNA and the damage to your DNA makes the DNA become even more damaged and this in turn makes your cells disregard the normal signals that tell your body how to behave and this ultimately leads to a tumour which grows uncontrollably, invasively and damages your body often fatally. If you uh, are asking, does that fashion the way we evolve? Well, it does, because if you're at high risk of getting a cancer, then you will die. You might die before you reach reproductive age, and therefore you will re remove yourself from the gene pool, and therefore you won't pass the gene that makes you at high risk of having cancer, or possibly the behaviour that encourages you to get cancer, onto any other individuals, and therefore you are encouraging humans to evolve in a way that reduces their risk of cancer. But cancer in and of itself doesn't mould our evolution. Natural selection does that. Every time we make sperms and we make eggs, we introduce new changes or mutations into them. And every new individual born on Earth has a handful, maybe 50, genetic changes that their parents don't have, which are naturally introduced by the process of making sperms and eggs. And that is the process by which we slowly evolve because those genetic changes are then pitched against the environment in which we live. Some of those genetic changes will be bad for you and those individuals will fare less well and they will not have as many children. Those genes will not increase in frequency in the population. Other people will have genetic changes that might give them an advantage. Those people will do better, they'll be fitter, they'll have more children, so those genes will increase in frequency in the population, and that's how evolution happens. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.